Please open your Bibles to Matthew, uh, chapter 20. We will read from verse 25 all the way up to verse 28. Just three verses uh, from our time together this evening. I hope you have the passage before you. Uh, I'll read it uh, for us. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of God. Evening, church. If it's December, we can do better than that. Good evening, church. That's better. Um, the last time I saw somebody preaching with a laptop, I think it was at college, and I remember frowning on him because I'm like, why is this guy uh, on his laptop? Why did he not print? Uh, we had technical issues this week, uh, and my laptop doesn't want to send emails or print any of my stuff. Uh, so I'm going to be preaching with a laptop. Amen. What is it? <laughs> I'm not judgmental. Um, it's just very distracting, but we're not going to be distracted. Amen. Uh, we're going to hear from God's word. Um, and as we, as we come to God's word, um, I just have a quote by a, name, a guy named uh, Sam Albury. Now, Sam Albury, for those who might not know him, he's a, he works for RZIM Ministries, an apologist ministry. Um, and his, his story is that he became um, a Christian uh, but from as young as he can remember, he had homosexual urges um, and struggles. And so as he became a Christian, uh, he came to realize that Jesus calls him uh, to live a certain way. And he's chosen a life of um, celibacy. So that's a bit um, of um, a background about his story, Sam Arbery. His stuff is great. I think he's written uh, many great books. Uh, so if you ever want to Google something on that topic of homosexuality and a Christian respond uh, to it, uh, please check out Sam Aubrey. Um, can I ask Reggie if he can help me with my charger before this thing um, dies? But so two years ago, Sam Aubrey wrote this, um, and this is uh, concerning Christmas. Uh, remember that we are still, we are in December period. We started off an Advent series, Advent uh, to commemorate uh, Christmas. Uh, and so this is, I wanted to start with these words. I use them also in the morning service um, because I just think they, they're powerful. They represent us as we come in uh, to hear God's word. This is what Sam Arbery says. Uh, o come, all ye faithless, joyless and defeated. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. He says that Christmas is for the weary for the messed up and for the broken, if your life is not Instagrammable, Christmas is for you. And as, as we come to God's word tonight, as we reflect on the message of uh, Christmas, perhaps you come in and you are heavy laden, you are weary uh, in your journey, and I do pray and hope that uh, God's word would challenge you uh, and would uh, create in you new desires to, um, to just serve him. Uh, and so as we get into his word, um, that is... Um, that is my prayer. So as I said, 
And as Reggie has said, we are in week three of our Advent series. Um, Advent, as we said last week, is uh, the English word simply means an arrival of somebody or something notable. Uh, So at Advent period, we celebrate and commemorate the arrival of King Jesus. And the question that we're simply asking is, what difference does this man make to our lives? Um, Does he make any difference uh, to our our lives, uh, this man, um, Jesus? Does the coming of King Jesus bring about any changes into how we live our lives uh, on a Monday morning wherever God has placed us. And so that's what we've been focusing on for uh, the last couple of weeks. Uh, We started off in our morning service uh, looking at Philippians chapter 2 and the difference that Jesus uh, brings to our lives. Philippians chapter 2 is that great story of God coming into our world uh, and showing humility. And we saw that God, or rather Paul, is calling uh, God's children to realign their lives uh, uh, alongside the life um, of Jesus, uh, to consider the uh, example of Jesus uh, and to live their lives as humble people. Uh, so that's what we saw in week one. Week two, which was last week, um, we repeated that sermon this morning as well, uh, was that God emptied his pockets to empower us uh, to empty our pockets. Uh, so that was last week, uh, that God is a generous God. And Christmas and the coming of Jesus reminds us of the generosity of God. Why? Uh, So that we can, in turn, live out our lives uh, in generous ways. Uh, This week, uh, we are going to see uh, that God came to serve us uh, so that we can serve others. I can just play my cards open uh, because Reggie has already kind of alluded to that. Uh, The passage tonight that we're going to see... Uh, we're going to learn that the coming of Jesus, uh, the reason why he came, one of the reasons why he came was to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he didn't just do that, uh, but he did that so that you and I uh, could live transformed lives. So if you want a summary of where we've been, uh, that's a, a summary. The coming of Jesus changes our posture, our pockets. And then tonight we're going to see that it changes our pursuits in life, the things that we dedicate our lives to. Our our, our posture has to be a posture of humility. Our pockets need to be uh, inside out, is it? Um, We need to live with open pockets and open arms because our God is a generous God. And tonight we're going to see that God calls us to a life of service. And as I say that, just as we said last week, I want you to think of our world I want you to think of uh, your workplace. Is it, is it an environment that is characterized by service? Would your team take a bullet for you? Let me pray for us as we get into um, God's word. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this, your word. Thank you for this um, period um, of Advent. Thank you that we can look at your word and that it can speak to us uh, wherever we are right now, uh, that we can be reminded that the coming of Jesus is not just um, about us having fun and uh, hanging up Christmas trees, singing carols, but that it has massive impacts on our lives. So I do pray, Father, that you would work in us, that you would begin to establish your kingdom in our hearts uh, as we go out uh, and to live out your mission 
in this broken world. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We live in a dog-eat-dog world, don't we? Um, we live in a world where nobody puts um, anybody first. In fact, the only way when we put somebody first um, is when we want to trample on them to get ahead, isn't it? Think about your workspace. Think about our country. Um, think about the men in our country. Uh, recently on social media, there's been uh, this uh, trending uh, video of a guy taking out a girl uh, from a car. Uh, and it's been, I guess, making rounds. But it is a picture, a small picture of uh, what is the situation uh, surrounding men uh, in our country. Um, it is people who call themselves blessers. Um, they put others first, uh, but not for their sake, uh, but for the sake of their own gratification. These are people who drive family cars that never have family in them, as Twitter says. Um, but it has um, girls, uh, and they, because of their money and their resources, live a life where they use those resources uh, to get what they want. They put others first. They bless them. But what they're actually looking for is a blessing. Think about uh, your bosses. When you, when you hear the word boss, what comes to your mind? You don't have to shout it out, but what comes to your mind? Does, self, does this word come to your mind? Uh, selfless? Serving? Is that your experience of corporate essay? I've had many co coffees and uh, suppers with people who work in corporate essay, and they say that it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Um, it's, nobody's your friend out there. You need to always be watching your back because somebody might just hug you and put a knife uh, behind you. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. Those who have money dominate those who who don't. Yet there's something inside of us that longs for a world where service is the order of society. There's something about being created in God's image, being made image bearers, uh, being put in our world uh, to represent God that we wired um, for lives of service. We wired to long for service. In fact, when we see people who are selfless, it brings joy to our, um, our lives. It brings joys uh, and, uh, and tears of joys um, to us. Um, Martin Luther King said this um, about service. He said that life's most pertinent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? Can you think of a society where everyone asks themselves this and where they lived according to this? What are you doing for others? He says that an individual has not begun to live until he can rise above the narrow horizons of his particular individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. And we know from his life that he did not look to his own interests, that he gave up his life uh, to the service of the struggle for human rights. And he says, and this is one of the big problems of life, that so many people never quite get to the point of rising above self. How true is that? Uh, many of us want it to be about us. Especially as we saw last week, when pressure mounts, 
we tend to be self-preserving. Someone were to walk in here with a gun, very few of us would jump at the opportunity of taking the bullet for others. It's human instinct. We want to um, be self-preserving. And we never rise above um, self. And so they end up with... They end up the tragic victims of self-centeredness. They end up the victims of distorted and disrupted um, personality. Life has its beginning and its maturity comes into being when the individual rises above self to something greater. If this is true, Martin Luther, how do we rise above ourselves to something greater? How do we live in a society in a context where it's a dog-eat-dog world um, in a different way, in a countercultural way, but not just countercultural, in a way that brings salt and light to our workplaces, in a way that transforms society, in a way that sees the kingdom of God being established in our world. When you think about the kingdom of God, by the way, we often think of what? Dying and going to heaven. But as you read the Gospels and as you read the New Testament, you'll see that Jesus is more interested with establishing the kingdom right here and right now, a kingdom of transformed life, a kingdom of a transformed society that echoes through all of eternity. So yes, the kingdom of God, um, the kingdom of heaven is about going to heaven, but it's primarily about a life that begins now. And Jesus wants to establish that life, a life where people rise above their self and self-centeredness to something greater, which is a service um, to other people. And so tonight, we're going to be asking ourselves, how do we rise um, to become uh, something greater? How do we rise above self? Because that's our natural instinct, isn't it? My nature is to be about me uh, in every relationship, in every sort of space I go into. I want it to be about me. And so we're going to be looking at three different stories uh, three stories. One is the story of Christmas. Uh, the second one is the story of Ernest Gordon in the World War II. Then I thought to myself as, as I was preparing, I'm like, many of us don't even know what the World War II is all about. Um, we didn't live in that period, uh, and most of it is far removed from us. But I wanted a story that's closer to home as well. Uh, and we're going to see the third story is a story of a man uh, called Andre Sibomana. He's from Rwanda, uh, and his, um, his story is phenomenal. Andre was a Catholic priest. Uh, so we're going to see the story of Christmas, uh, that is the story of the coming of Jesus, and how that mobilizes us to be people who are about others. Uh, and then we're going to see the story of uh, the World War II, a story of sacrifice, uh, a small picture of the Jesus story, and then another story of an African man uh, who goes uh, to, uh, through all lands to be about others uh, and not be about himself. Uh, Reggie read for us Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 to 28, but we're going to be spending our time in Mark chapter 10. Uh, don't worry, it's the same story. It is the same story. Uh, but I, I, I'm doing Mark because at the start of the year, we're going to be looking at the theme of discipleship through Mark's gospel. It is, I've been um, gleaning so much 
uh, from Mark's gospel. Um, so we're going to be spending um, uh, the first part of the year looking at that, uh, at the book of Mark. But let's have a look at chapter 10, especially reading from verse 35 uh, to 45. Similar story, um, but just in Mark's way of telling stories. Now, before, just before we get there, there are three different accounts of the life of Jesus. And there are similar stories. But each of the gospel writers writes to a particular context and they want to deliver a certain message. So you see that they put uh, certain stories in certain places to make a literary point, to make uh, a point uh, to come across. So all of them have a, a, a motive. Uh, all of them have a goal as to why they're writing the gospel. Um, so we shouldn't just think, oh, here's another story in Matthew, similar story in Mark. Um, doesn't matter. But there's a structure to it, and we're going to see the structure in it. And next year we're going to see that the structure of Mark's gospel is the, the shape of Mark's gospel is the shape of the Christian life. Uh, because Mark is writing to people who are facing pressure, and he wants to show them who Jesus is so that they can make sense of their lives. Having said that, let's go into Mark chapter 10, verse 35. This is the story. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Trap question, uh, trap uh, thing to say. Verse 36, and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Listen what, to what they ask. Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Um, what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. So here are two guys who've been walking with Jesus. Uh, they come up to him uh, because throughout Mark's gospel, uh, we see that uh, Jesus is setting himself up as king. And this is a reasonable thing to ask. If you're going to be in glory, if you're going to be king, then you need uh, uh, an executive, don't you? You need one guy on your left, the secretary general, comrade, fellow comrade. And then you need another, um, uh, I don't know what... Um, office he occupies, but you need guys who are going to be in the top three, three and managing your kingdom because Christ simply means king, and if you were king, back then it meant you will rule, and if you rule, it meant things are going to go well for you. And so they asked Jesus, uh, please grant us to sit uh, at your left uh, and your right. Uh, please grant us to sit in positions of authority in your kingdom, but what Jesus says next uh, is going to blow them away about the kind of kingdom he's setting up and about the kind of king that he is. And the ten other guys, obviously, they think to themselves, man, why didn't I think of this before those two guys went in? Uh, have a look at 
verse 41. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, so he's beginning to teach uh, all of them, you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Uh, so Jesus is saying to them, the rulers of this world um, lord it over people. They dominate them. They are domineering figures. They receive power so that they can be over others and be about themselves. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. This is one of the most countercultural, revolutionary messages of the New Testament that Jesus. In his kingdom, things are upside down. Uh, things are different in Jesus' kingdom. Those who are great uh, and those who um, are in positions of authority are not those who lord over people, but it is those who serve others. Verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Verse 45, this is key. This is the Christmas message. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Three times in the, the three Gospels, this phrase, Son of Man, appears. The Son of Man came to do that, that, that. Firstly, is that the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And we did a series on that a couple of years ago called Meals, um, Feast with the King. And we were looking at the life of Jesus, that he came to hang out with people that you'd normally think that Jesus wouldn't hang out with. He hung out with tax collectors, sinners, corrupt politicians, uh, people who we would not think they would be part of God's kingdom. So that's the first uh, um, son of man came um, Phrase, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The second one is that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And the third one, which we see in all the three Gospels, is that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And no other Gospel shows this like Mark's Gospel. Mark is all about a servant king. In fact, if you flip over to the end, most of the Gospels have a very elaborate um, description of the resurrection of Jesus. Most of them are pointing us to a resurrected Jesus. Mark is doing something different. Mark is pointing us to a crucified Lord, a crucified King. And we're going to see um, why he does that next year. He does it for a very good reason. Um, he starts off in Mark chapter 1, talking about the arrival of the king, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then it goes on to, to, um, uh, to, to, to talk about the presence of Jesus being um, the coming of the, the, the kingdom. And then for chapters 1 to 8, Jesus performs miracles and does so many things to prove that he has authority as king. And on and on, the disciples, their eyes are opening up a bit. And then we go to chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. What do we see there? A healing. But what happens in this healing? It's something a bit different. Normally, Jesus 
when he sees a blind man, what does he do? Slays hands on them, and then they see. But in this particular miracle, we see that after Jesus prays for the blind man, uh, in fact, he spits on the floor and um, applies mud on his face, and then the guy is, and he asks him, can you see anything? And he's like, yeah, I can see, but people look like trees, so I can't see properly. So he has to pray for him again to receive sight. That's a very important miracle, uh, and it's placed in a very important place. If you still have your Bibles, I hope you have your Bibles, because chapter 1, the shape of this gospel is the shape of the Christian life, and we're going to get into it uh, next year. But the miracle of uh, the blind man seeing is followed by Peter's confession of the Christ. So after eight chapters, uh, Peter finally recognizes, as Jesus asks, who am I? He says, you are the Christ. So he can see his eyes are being opened, but he can't see clearly, as the miracle suggests. He can see people, but they look like trees. He can see who Jesus is, but his picture of who Jesus is is not complete. And then after uh, Peter confesses that um, Jesus is the Christ, what happens? Well, Jesus predicts his death. And then on, we see Mark telling us that Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And we know that he's going to Jerusalem to be crucified. So these disciples, what I'm trying to say is that they, they can see who Jesus is, but they haven't fully recognized uh, the kind of king he is. They can see that he's king, but they haven't seen the kind of uh, kingdom that he's coming to establish. That is why in chapter 10, verse uh, 32, after Jesus foretells his uh, death, For the third time, these guys come to him and say, can we be in positions of authority in your kingdom? I wonder if you see that. Verse 32, uh, Jesus foretells his death the third time, and then the disciples go on to ask for positions of authority. What follows after that? Anybody shouted. What follows after the story? Verse 46. Jesus heals another blind guy. Um, So the miracles are placed specifically to tell the story of an opening of eyes, of guys coming to realize that the kind of king that Jesus is, is a different king. He's a king who's come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the story of Christmas. That is the story that ushers us and motivates us and encourages us to live lives of service, uh, to live lives that are not me-centered, but other people-centered. Why is that? Because our God came. Why did Jesus come at Christmas? To serve and not to be served. The second story that we're going to see um, is the story of Ernest um, Gordon. And it's a story that uh, happens uh, during the, the World War. Uh, a group of soldiers were uh, captured by um, uh, the Japanese um, and this is what they had to say. This Ernest Gordon guy is one of the survivors of this uh, a prisoner of war. And he describes the situation around the campsite. It was a dog-eat-dog world. Uh, it was like Midrand and like Jovig. He says pressure mounted as conditions steadily worsened, as starvation, exhaustion, and disease took an ever-growing toll. The atmosphere in which we lived was increasingly poisoned 
by selfishness, hatred, and fear. Put people in pressure, last week we said, and they act in selfish ways. So this was the situation uh, of these prisoners. Although they were fellow prisoners uh, in this camp, they were living selfishly and they were living with hatred and fear. Hatred towards their captors and a fear of looming death because they saw their mates dying. Before the patterns of army life had sustained us, we had still shown some consideration for each other. Now that was all swept away. Existence had become so miserable, the odds so heavy against survival, that to most of the prisoners, nothing mattered except to survive. We lived by the law of the jungle, survival of the fit, fit, fittest. It was the case of, I look out for myself, and sorry to say this, but to hell with everyone else. Doesn't that describe our world? I think that um, that is a picture of our world. And this guy, as uh, Gordon Ennis uh, depicts the story, he says that they used to go to church. Uh, so they used to do the normal stuff um, of going to church. For most, religion was an attempt to find a quick and easy answer, a release from our fears. As human resources failed, men turned to God and said, in effect, Look, old boy, I'm in trouble. I'll speak, of, I'll speak well of you if you'll get me out of it. <laughs> How many of us ever found ourselves not praying those prayers, but thinking those things? God, help me to get out of this, and I'll speak well of you. Church going for thus, for many, thus became a kind of insurance policy to protect them from personal suffering. They believed that if they strict talked talk God properly, he would be persuaded to rescue them from miseries, from their miseries. But one of the most powerful um, stories happens uh, in this camp. Um, so you can imagine it's a camp that's filled with um, so much self-centeredness. Uh, but one day, a shovel, one of the tools, went missing. And so the Japanese soldiers obviously got angry and wanted to know who took the shovel. Who took the shovel? And the missing, it's the story of the missing shovel. At the end of each day, uh, Ernest writes, um, tools were collected from the work party. On one occasion, a Japanese guard shouted that a shovel was missing and demanded to know which man had taken it. He began to rend and rave, waking himself up uh, into a paranoid fury and ordered everyone who was guilty, only one who was guilty to step forward. No one moved. All die, all die, he screamed, cocking his gun and aiming at his rifle uh, at the, the prisoners. At that moment, one man stepped forward. The guard clapped him to death with his rival while he silently stood to attention. That's the story of sacrifice. When they returned to camp, the tools were counted again and no shovel was missing. So this guy didn't steal the shovel, but he came in and offered himself as a sacrifice to his fellow soldiers. And, and as Gordon says that after that, the mood around the camp changed. When one man sacrificed himself for the sake of others, they began to be mobilized and to live uh, for other people. Quite an encouraging human story. Quite an encouraging story because it actually happened. The story of Christmas happened, yet this story uh, of a war camp is a small picture of that story. 
The last story is a story of an African father, Father Andre. Um, if you know the story of Rwanda, it is the story of um, a recent genocide. In 1994, 800,000 people died from machetes. Just a straight, it was the Easter of 1994, and tension was building in the country. Uh, and after the assassination of their then president, a civil war uh, broke out, and one of the tribes hunted the other and killed them with machetes. It's quite a gruesome story. If you've watched the movie Hotel Rwanda, uh, you'd see that um, graphic, graphic story. And Hotel Rwanda um, uh, depicts that. And, and I've been reading a book recently that speaks about Christianity in Rwanda. Rwanda was known to be the most Christian society. And the guy tells the story that guys were doing practice on one day. President got killed. The following day, the same choir members were hunting down each other. Can you imagine our guys here? They music together, and then the following day, because one is Tosa, one is Zulu, they butcher each other. So that was the situation. And obviously, if you are part of the tribe, um, uh, the, the Hutu tribe, you, you had to uh, form part of those who were butchering others. Uh, so Andre writes uh, in one book as he depicts his own, um, his own experience of it. So he was a, a Hutu who did not succumb to killing others. In fact, what he did is he went out and rescued people. He hit them uh, to his own, um, I guess, putting his own life to danger, such that he had to flee um, the country at some point. He says that for many people in Rwanda... Refraining from murder was in itself an act of resistance. Uh, so to refrain from killing um, people was in itself an act of resistance. But here's a man whose life was in danger. Not only did he resist to kill his neighbor, but he welcomed them and hid them uh, from his own countrymen. Several peasant farmers were killed because they refused to strike the corpses of their two neighbors. They are, they are courageous and upright men, there are courageous and upright men who were not able or did not dare to come to the aid of their fellows and now live with remorse of having failed to do so. There is no merit in my having, been, having rescued a, peop, a few people because it was in my power to do so. My position, this is powerful, my position gave me a better chance than others. So here's a man who has a high position. Uh, nobody's hunting him down to kill him. But if he chooses to side with the other uh, culture, if he chooses to side with the other tribe, he's putting his life in danger. But he doesn't just side with them, but he rescues a few, a few of them. And what does he say about his, his, his efforts? Well, it wasn't so much a merit to me. It was in my <clears throat> power to do so. There was nothing in it for me, but in my power, I managed to save but a few what a society, what a way to respond when pressure mounts and when culture calls us to do something other than serve and put others first. Those are encouraging stories for us to, to go out there and serve. And the point that we see in our passage tonight is the point of the life of Jesus. And I think this man, these two guys, understood the gospel. 
because they lived it out. Verse 45, this is the gospel. This is the king that we worship. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is why Jesus has come. And it's not complicated. He's calling us to go out there and to serve. But let me end off with two things. Not so much, yeah, I guess one is a challenge. One is like, um, one is an encouragement. Um, So I think there are two, there's two different people in church. One is are those who are hurt and have nothing to give at the moment. And two are those who still got more to give. And I want to speak to both of those. Um, there are those of us who hear this uh, call to service, and we've drummed it over the years here at Christ Church Midland. We are a redeemed family of servants on mission, and maybe you have experienced that, and maybe you've poured yourself into service, and you're just tired. Or maybe you're not tired. Maybe somebody in the team, uh, somebody in the uh, staff here said something to you that hurt you. Maybe you're listening in uh, on the website and you're thinking, those Christians at Christchurch, I'm done with saving them. Uh, and many of us face hurt. Perhaps it's not a church where you just feel fatigued, overused. People only call me when they need me. It happens, right? We live with broken people and sometimes you feel like, shucks, did these people even see me? They only call me when they need me. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's you. Um, we are broken people. And sometimes that is hurtful. Sometimes it's helpful to be at work. You know that you're a Christian and at work you ought to serve. But it feels like everyone just runs you over. It feels like they just walk all over you and just ask you to do more and more stuff. In fact, they've abused your service. Perhaps that's you and you're hurting and you're just in so much pain. And you just, at this moment, please don't hear this as a beat down. Please don't hear what Jesus is calling us to as a beat down. Well done on saving Jesus, uh, but you need help. At this moment, perhaps you don't need to serve. You need counseling. Uh, You need people to come alongside you and counsel you so that you can be equipped to serve more. Can I encourage you if you're that person? um, If you are afraid to talk to any of us, um, please um, just um, connect to our counseling um, services here. Um, they will connect you to somebody who will be able to help you. Uh, but there are many of us who come in here and we have a lot to give. We have a lot to give. And Jesus is encouraging us uh, to live lives of service, to consider his coming and to recognize that he came to serve us so that you can go serve others. So can I encourage you as you go into this week Um, We can talk all day about service, but here's the thing. Here's the test for me uh, to you. Um, Consider this. Where am I going to serve? Can I challenge you to think about, for a minute, the things that you complain about the most? What are those things? Can I challenge you to turn those areas of complaint to areas of service? Maybe it's in your workplace. This, this workplace is not the friendliest of environment. That's a ministry opportunity. That's a ministry opportunity. Perhaps you think, yo, like people are out here for themselves. They backstabbers. I hate this working environment. 
turn that into a moment of service as you walk towards people and show them what it means to just be about them. Turn moments of complaints into moments of service. Perhaps it's in your marriage or with your kids. I tend to complain about my kids um, because uh, they stretch me, eh? and I'm like, I I have nothing to give anymore. I'm just tired. These kids annoy me. Turn your moments of annoyance or moments of complaints to moments of service. God, thank you so much. You gave me these wonderful kids. Nobody in this world can shape them uh, like I can because nobody is their father. You've given, given me the privilege to serve them. And yes, Lord, I'm tired, but please give me strength once again to serve them. Moments of complaint to moments of service. Your wife or your spouse, your husband, I'm just tired of this guy. He's always leaving the socks. We've had the same conversation over and over again. How much more do I need to do, Lord? Moments of complaint to moments of service. Family. And we spoke about that. I don't know why God is laying it on my heart to talk to you guys about family. I think those are probably some of the hardest people to serve and love, isn't it? Because you've done it over and over all those years, and it's like, man, when, when are these people ever going to change? I don't like my family. Perhaps you don't want to spend Christmas with them. Turn moments of complaints and moments like that into moments of service. Only God can do that in us. Why don't we turn to him in prayer? Uh, Father, thank you so much um, for Christmas. Uh, thank you uh, because you remind us at this time uh, of who you are and what you came to do. And tonight we are reminded that you came to serve. And we see that, Lord, in the lives of others, uh, in the lives of those who sacrifice their, li their lives for the sake of others. Uh, and there's many stories of ordinary Christians uh, who, who do that. Um, but the ultimate example, the ultimate motivation for us is Jesus, who came not to be served, the one who deserved all, all of the service. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And tonight, Lord, we recognize that you are calling us to that life that is hard, a life of one more time this week, giving ourselves to the service of others. So I pray that you'd empower us by your spirit uh, to see those moments of complaint as moments of service, a service to our neighbor, service to uh, those who are close to us that we love, and service to those who even hate us. Um, pray that you would equip us. I pray for people in their families um, and also in their workplaces, because that's where we spend most of our times. I pray that you would help us to live in those environments and to bring about your kingdom and the salt and the light uh, into those environments, uh, that they would be different because we were there. Not because we are special, but we follow a king who is, a king who served um, instead of being served. Please equip us as we go into this week. Through Christ our Lord we ask. Amen.